Psalm 9. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 9 and 10, and I'll, I'll get into why we're doing that this morning here in just a minute as we uh, discuss, uh, discussed, no, as we discuss, uh, two different words, uh, discuss the text this morning. Uh, but think with me uh, to prepare us to, for, for the message is it true in your life as it is, I, I, think, I think it's true in your life, that, that sometimes the, the gut punches in life just don't seem to stop? It, maybe sometimes we, we go through some easy times, but it, it, it just seems, you know, when, when things start happening that things continue to happen. Um, maybe, uh, hypothetically, it's losing two secretaries and a youth minister in two months. Uh, to, to speak of something that, okay, is totally going on right now. Uh, if you want to see the definition of chaos, come by the office during the week. Uh, and it's no slam on anybody in the office. We are just uh, at wit's end sometimes because of all the changes that have happened. As a matter of fact, to that, uh, as a part of that discussion, here's a little aside that uh, just to keep y'all up to date and what's going on, Carol Fontenot is taking over our financial books for us, and the absolute truth is that they are a mess uh, between illness and transition and new software and uh, then a, a secretary leaving suddenly. Things are just a mess. Luckily, it's in her expert hands to get us through that, and we are thankful that she has stepped up to take that, but it's going to take us a while to get everything sorted out. I can tell you that for the most part, bills are being paid. Uh, there are some things that, as I've said, I said in a business meeting, fell through the cracks. Some transfers haven't gotten done yet, but all those things are being taken care of slowly but surely. Uh, it's not anybody doing anything malicious or mean. It was just a sequence of events that, had, that, that worked out badly. I'll be talking more about that in our business meeting Wednesday night uh, after we vote on those uh, three things, the, the uh, agendas in the back. So we'll have time for questions and answers, but if you have general questions about it, come to me and ask me. Be more than happy to tell you what's going on, what's happening. If you have very specific questions and you want technical terminology, well then talk to Carol. Uh, she will have those uh, answers for you, but we are getting that worked out. So, you know, it was just gut punch after gut punch after gut punch. Maybe it's not a work issue for you. Maybe it's multiple medical diagnoses that you find out there's no treatment for. So you're just kind of uh, uh, muddling, meddling, muddling along. Did I get that? Yeah, muddling along. Um, maybe it's consecutive months of financial hits for you. The job has not been what you needed it to be for a while. It's, it's in sales or you're a contract laborer or the, the bills. It's this medical bill, that medical bill, eye doctor, something breaks on and on and on. You know, just maybe that's what it is. We know what those gut punches are. And, and here, David, uh, we assume the psalmist in, in uh, this Psalm 9 and 10 he understands that. But what he's going to show us in these two psalms is that even when the future is unsure, God is worthy of our praise. We have reason for praise regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. It's just the way life as a believer 
is and certainly should be. So Psalm 9 and 10, we're looking at them together today. Uh, they were the next Psalms. Psalm 9 and 10 seem to go together. Uh, in, in the, as a matter of fact, in some of the oldest manuscripts, they, they were together. It was one psalm. Even today, you can find some Bibles that put them together as one psalm. Uh, the theme that, uh, and then you also have some Bibles that split them. The theme from, carries over from 9 to 10. Uh, that's one reason we know that they probably should have gone together. The two psalms together make an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. So uh, the first four lines start with the letter Hebrew letter A, Aleph, their uh, uh, letter A. The next four start with Beit. You don't see it in English, but you can see it in Hebrew, so on and so forth. And then at the end of chapter uh, Psalm 9, you see the word Selah. Selah is usually like a musical pause, uh, a, a little uh, a rest until you start the next line. It doesn't usually come at the end of the psalm, so it seems pretty clear that they go together. We're going to take these two together because they go, the theme goes together so well. And the theme that we get here is this striking view of despair, lament, and praise all wrapped up in this one, uh, often one song sung in temple worship, sometimes split depending on the needs. And we can break these two psalms up into seven sections. It's repetitive. Uh, verses 9, 1 through 12 uh, is a statement of faith and praise for God's past acts. Then the psalmist makes a plea in verses 13 and 14. He goes back to pray, faith and praise for past, past acts in 15 through 18. Then 9, 19 through 10, 2 make another plea. Chapter 10, verses 3 through 11 are a lament about what is currently going on in the life of the psalmist. 10, 12 through 15 are a plea again. And then we end in verses 16 through 18 with another statement of faith and praise for what God has done in the past. So we're going to look at the passages, uh, the, these two psalms broken up. That way. So the first part we're going to look at is this statement of faith in the uh, past. Read along with me. Psalm 9, 1 uh, through 10. It says, I will thank the Lord with all my heart. I will declare all your wondrous works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name most high. When my enemies retreat, they stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my just cause. You are seated on your throne as a righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations, you have destroyed the wicked, you have erased their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to eternal ruin. You have uprooted the cities, and the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's established his throne for judgment, and he judges the world with righteousness. He ex executes judgment on the nations with fairness. The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. Sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Proclaim his deeds among the nations. For the one who seeks an accounting for bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the oppressed. Here in this first group of verses, uh, David or the psalmist, I'll say David, looks back at what God has done. And he begins by praising. And if you take just those first two verses, it doesn't immediately strike you as a guy who is lamenting something that's going on or, or uh, 
struggling with some issues in his life. He, he begins with this phrase, uh, I will thank the Lord with all my heart. I will declare your wondrous works or magnificent works depending on your translation. This phrase is almost exclusively reserved for creation or God's acts in Israel's history. So we know right off the bat that David is not talking about simply what he has seen God do in his own life. He is talking about what he has seen God do in everyone's life throughout history, particularly the history of Israel. He's getting us ready to understand that while in verses in chapter 10, verses 3 through 10, he's going to be talking about something very specific to him, his body of knowledge, his, his resource for faith and hope comes from what God has done in, in his people's life. So for us to, excuse me, for us today, it would be us responding to a personal issue in our lives by looking at our church body and seeing what God has done in individual lives. That's part of what being a church family means, a, a community of believers that says, I know what you're going through. I've done it. Let me tell you what God did in my life. Let me tell you how he pill, uh, big, uh, picked me up and built me up so that you can experience the same grace and hope and faith that I did. Now, the, the, the praise of verses 1 and 2, and we're going to kind of Skint, we're going to skip a rock over these two psalms and kind of hit, talk about where it hits here uh, rather than go too deeply into them. The, the praise of verses 1 and 2 are followed by when, not since. Normally what a psalmist would do is, God, I praise you for your magnificent works. Uh, thank you with all my heart. Rejoice and boast about you. I'll sing about your name most high because... Of what you have done or since you have done these things. David does something different here that he doesn't do very often in the Psalms. He says to God, God I, will, I praise you, I will thank you, I will declare, I will rejoice, I will sing when. It almost sounds like he's trying to manipulate God. Or, or maybe he's got, he, he's got a deal for God. Hey God, you know what? Let me make you a deal. You do this for me, I got some good praise for you on the other side. You know, no, that sounds like what he's, you know, he's opened up his coat. I got some praise for you, God. That's not what he's doing here. This is not a bribe for God. He's not telling God, if you do this for me, well, then I'll praise you. What he is doing is he is praying through what he knows God is going to do. David is assured of the future opportunity to turn around and praise God for what he is going to do now in the past. Maybe a, a different way to look at that. David stands here in the present and says, God, I see what you have done throughout history for the people of Israel. I know what I'm going through, and as I bring this to you and pray to you about this, I can confidently say that one day I will praise you for bringing me out of what I'm in right now. And I'll say this again later on, and I, but I want to say it now too. David is not talking about when he dies. There is no, if you want the big word for it, eschatological view here. He's not talking about the end times. He's not talking about what's going to happen when the Lord comes back and judges everybody on earth. He is talking about an understanding that God will do this in, within the lifetime of David. 
uh, David. What we see in verses 5 through 10, where he says, You have rebuked the nations, you've destroyed the wicked, you've erased their name, the enemy has come to eternal ruin, you've uprooted cities, their memory has perished, on and on and on. The Lord, though, sits forever, enthroned forever. He establishes his throne for judgment. He executes judgment. He's a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in trouble. They, they who know your name trust in you because you don't abandon those people. What he is saying here, it's an understanding, it's a statement of faith that God is permanent, problems aren't. So even before he stated his problems, he's praised God for what he's done in the past. He's given us a little hint that some issues are going on personally. But then he says, when, when I come to the end of this, I'm going to praise you because I know that while my problems may seem like they will never go away, while it seems that the persecution will never stop, I know for a fact this is not permanent, but God, you are. David goes on, verse 13. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death so that I may declare all your praises. I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of daughter Zion. We come to the first plea that David makes in this psalm. He's looked to Israel's past to see hope for his personal future. See what you've done, God, so I know that you can do it in my life too. And he's pleading with God here, pleading with God here to work in his life. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction. Lift me up from the gates. For my own glory, for my own benefit, verse 14, no, so that I may declare all your praises. To rejoice in your salvation. To tell others how great you are, not how wonderful I am. David understands that when ultimately he is vindicated, it will be God's doing, not his own. It's just a, a, mat a matter of life and fact that when you are falsely accused, it's rare that your own defense does any good. Well, of course he'd say that. He doesn't want to get caught. But when God vindicates, all the, uh, the accused has to do is step back and say, there you go. And that's what David is saying here. The day will come when he will be vindicated and he will just be able to step back and say, God brought me through this. God worked it out, no matter what other people were trying to do. Verse 15, the nations have fallen into the pit they made. Their foot is caught in the net they have concealed. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed justice, snaring the wicked by the work of their hands. The wicked will return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten. The hope of the oppressed will not perish forever. David moves back to praise, primarily for past acts again. But there's also a hopefulness here. He is praising God that the evil are caught in their own plans in verses 15 and 16. Very often we see that's the way it works in our lives. That when accusations of lying and deception come, it's found that the one making the accusations was really the liar and the deceiver. 
And that's what we see over and over. That is God's doing. Now, it, we have a nice little view here in 15 and 16 of, of uh, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility working together. Because it says they fall into the pit that they made. They, they concealed the net and they got caught in it. But in verse 16, it is the Lord who has executed justice and snared the wicked. They did this, they were responsible, and yet God showed up and caused it to happen. How does God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together? That is a great question, so we're going to move on. It's a hard question, but it's clear that it happens. And verses 17 and 18, he says the, the wicked will return to Sheol. That's interesting. It's not that the wicked came from Sheol. But what it means is they came from their homes, their cities, whatever, to oppress, to fight, to cause issues. And they think when they get done, they think when they've won that one, ha, we got them, that they're going to turn around and go home again. But in fact, they will return not home, but to death. They will return to what they had planned for David and those who were in their sights. See, victory for the evil is an illusion. They think they have won. Ah, got them. Now we're good. But when they return, they find that they had no victory at all. Believers, the, the situation, the current situation may appear hopeless. And what you want me to say after that fragment is, but it's not. But what I'm going to say after that fragment is, actually, it may be. The situation, your current situation may appear hopeless, and it may actually be hopeless. That is the uh, picture David is painting here. The wicked, I mean, they're going to be here. They've done these things. We can't get this back. We can't turn back time. We can't fix what they've done. The people that they have killed are dead. The people that they have wounded are hurt. The, the reputations that they have destroyed are destroyed. Those are things that we can never get back. So the hopeless situation may actually be hopeless. And that leaves us with the question, does God even care? Well, David's going to struggle with that, but he's going to come to the conclusion that God is not aware, not unaware, rather, nor is he uncaring. Verse 19 of chapter 9. Rise up, Lord. Do not let mere humans prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Put terror in them, Lord. Let the nations know they are only humans. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue their victims. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. Now we come to plea number two. A plea full of commands, wishes, and rhetorical questions. Uh, if you like grammar, and I don't see any hands, uh, these would be imperatives and justives. I don't know that we studied many justives in, uh, in English, but an imperative is do this, and it's a command. You understand that it's a command. But a justive is more like, I really wish you'd do this. It's a, it's, a, it's a telling somebody to do something, but it's in a nicer way. 
and in a manner that uh, shows a desire, but not a complete expectation that you'll do it just because I said it. That I, I tell you that because it matches how David is responding to the Lord. We would, some of us would say, oh my goodness, he can't tell what God what to do, but yeah, he does. And he does it in faith. That's where the, the, these justs, these wishes come in. The commands that David give to God, he says, rise up, Lord. Put terror in them, Lord. Look how many times he uses God's name, Lord, 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 three times in, three, in four verses. The, the, the wishes, I wish you would not let mere humans prevail. I wish you would let the nations be judged in your presence. I wish you would let the nations know they are only human. And then we come to the rhetorical questions, these whys. Lord, why do you stand so far away? David is, is verklempt about this. Why, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Lord, where are you when two secretaries and a youth minister are gone in two months? Why? Why do you seem so far away at times? See, the clear feeling of the psalmist is that God is not doing anything. God is, it, it, it's not even that he, he's preoccupied. That's, that's not even the, that's not the, the feeling of the passage. The feeling of the passage isn't is that he's busy helping somebody else, doing something with someone else, or, or he's got other issues. It's just that he's, you know, on the recliner, and is that dog scratching at the door again? Oh, no, I'm not getting up this time. He can just scratch for a while. That's the impression we get. Clear feeling that God's not doing anything. It's a bad place to be. And it's an understandable place to be when, when those gut punches just keep coming. Where there seems to be no end. When there seems to be no way out. And we think, I have no reason to praise God right now. But... We see some hints here. Rise up, Lord. Put terror in them, Lord, Lord. Uh, that is Yahweh. That is the covenant name. David is being as intimate as he can. And the repetition of that Lord is showing the intensity of the emotion. When Edda really wants me to hear something. Michael? Can you, Michael, can you do this for me, please, Michael? Now, can you, Michael, you know, and I know, okay, she's really, she's trying to get this across to me, or, uh, or my, maybe I'm thinking, is she saying something? But then, but she, but I get it, I know, that's what David's saying, Lord, do you, do you hear me, Lord, Lord, are you listening, Lord, why? But it's more than that, it's more than just him trying to get God's attention, that covenant name, Lord, that is David invoking the relationship that he knows he has with God. I can call him Yahweh. I can call him I am. Because he's not just God. He's not just 
El. He's not just Elohim. He's not just separate. He's, he's not even uh, maybe a little closer Adonai, a, 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 relation, a, a relation, moral relational word. Uh, he is Yahweh. He is intimate. He is who has shown himself to me to be gracious and caring and involved and loving. I know that name. I know when that name is mentioned that he is going to act. Not because I mentioned the name, but because of who is connected to that name. You probably have somebody in your life like that. Something's going wrong with an issue, or maybe it's not, uh, maybe it's not even a major thing. It's, it's, uh, I, I know when I first came here, we always, you're always looking for people to do the, the, the maintenance things, and you don't know who to call, and, and, and so you, you put out, and nowadays you put it on Facebook for recommendations. Um, and for us, the, the first, one of the first people I had to have was a mechanic. Who do I take my car to to get whatever fixed? And the name I heard, and this isn't a commercial for him, but it, just the name I heard was Clyde. Go to Clyde. And that's who I go to. And it's been great. But now what I've noticed is when you talk to somebody, and I'm not asking for a recommendation anymore. I'm just talking, oh, goodness, my truck, the, uh, the ignition coils went bad again. I had to go get, it, get one replaced. Oh, who'd you take it to? Clyde. Oh. See, the mention of the name, right? The, 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 the name, it means something. It, it means a relationship. It means a knowledge of, of, of who that person is and the person's ability. So when David says Yahweh, it is a knowledge of who that person, Yahweh, that God, is. I know I can trust him. I know I can take my needs to him. And I will over and over and over. And that plea he goes on to now discuss the, the present situation, verses 3 through 10. For the wicked, uh, chapter 10, verses 3 through 10. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. Despises the Lord. In all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks, there's no count accountability since there's no God. His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him. He scoffs at all his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved from generation to generation without calamity. Cursing, deceit, and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. He waits in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in, a, in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize a victim. He seizes a victim and drags him in his net. So he is oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. This is a lament at the present circumstances, very likely the personal circumstances that David is going through, but possibly a uh, broader circumstance that the nation of Israel is going through. You could hear Nehemiah using this psalm as a, a psalm of worship as Sanballat and, and, and Tobiah came against him and tried to uh, stop the progress they were making. While it was a personal uh, attack, it had greater effects than just the, the, the attack on Nehemiah. 
the, the personal attack affected the entire nation of Israel at that time. Uh, personal attacks on uh, leaders always affect the organization that they're leading, not just that person. And it's a long characterization of the evil. It, it, it's almost out of place. You're like, wow, David, you really hammered them here. But David is wanting us, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to understand the depths of depravity that these people will go to or will sink to in order to get their own way, to oppress and to defeat and to stir up dissension. And what he calls it to... to, to distill all of this down here is he calls it functional atheism acting as if there is no God sadly we have way too many believers that do the same thing I can believe I can attend I can be a member but I can do whatever I want to because God's not going to do anything that is functional atheism but we see it described here in this passage as acting as if there is no God they know better but their actions uh, are portray them believing there is no God. We see him worshiping himself. He, he, he boasts about his own cravings. There's no accountability since there's no uh, God. Joyful oppression of others. He says he waits in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. He's proud of this. He lives to hurt people. And that's the whole purpose of his existence, though if you asked this person that David's talking about, he would tell you, oh, sure, I'm a Jew, oh, sure, uh, yeah, I believe in Yahweh, I go to temple, I do all those things. And yet, life is a life of functional atheism. He, he manufactures opportunities to inflict pain. If, if, uh, if the truth won't cause a problem, let's make up a lie to do it. That is functional atheism. And as David describes it, as he sees this oppressor coming down on either him or the community, you can hear the despair. You can, one, you, you, you can hear David wonder, and you might even wonder with him, is this person right? Is the oppressor correct? Has God given up? He just, does he not even fight for his people anymore? Does he not even take out those who cause the problems? And it'll leave you in a dark place. When we get to where we wonder if God even cares, what does that say we think about our fellow man? I mean, if it, normally, as believers, we would say, if all others forsake me, I know God is faithful. But then when, when we start saying, I wonder, though, even, is God going to stand up for me? That's when it's a dark, deep hole that you've got to climb out of. But David shows us how. Rise up, Lord God, verse 12. Rise up, Lord God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why has the wicked person despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account. But you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your hands. But you, God, you've seen. I know you're not far off. I know you're not hiding. I know you are aware of what's being done. 
The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper to the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked, evil person until you look for his wickedness, but it can't be found. That's a pretty, pretty violent verse in verse 15. But it's a plea. It's a plea that recognizes God is not blind to what's going on. He's begging God, God, prove the evil wrong. I, I put it, I, I know that you are observing it. I know that you are aware of it. You've seen it. Lord, I leave it in your hands, take it into your hands, and I trust, entrust myself to you because you are a helper. The trust of the oppressed and wronged is rightly placed in God and in his hands. People are going to believe what they want to believe about you. And while you may have friends that will defend you, and you may have people that will say there's just no way, even absent any evidence to the contrary, there will be people that will believe what they want to believe about you, and it just doesn't matter. Nothing's going to convince them otherwise. You have to leave them, those people, with God. And it may be a prayer that you pray that says, Lord, break the arm of the wicked, evil person until you look for his wickedness and you can't find it anymore. That's a, that's a very biblical prayer. We don't generally pray for people to be hurt or die. And what he's talking about here is really not a physical uh, uh, wound or certainly not even death, but it is breaking the power because in the Old Testament especially, the right arm, the arm represents power. So he's saying, God, lift your arm against the powerful arm of this evil person and stop it. It's an emotional cry here from David to end the work of the oppressor with finality. God, bring this to an end. And then he ends the psalm. Verses 16 through 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from this land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. Our reason for praise, even as we are oppressed, in those last three verses. God has not changed. Throughout history, God has not changed. God is in charge. And there are some circumstances in life, there are some issues, there are some times of oppression and persecution and illness and pain and other things that that is all we have. God has not changed and God is in charge. And that's all we can say. And we can pray, Lord, break the arm of the wicked. And we can pray, Lord, may the truth come out. May they fall in the snares. But there is no guarantee that that will happen. And as a, again, as I said, this is not a look to the end of time. But looking in this life, there's no guarantee that the now will be fixed. 
there is the guarantee that God has not changed and he is in charge. What we see in this psalm, if we were hoping for this grand ending where everything is perfect and figured out and fine, you're not going to get it. What we get, the language of this psalm, is not of ultimate victory, but of constant relationship. Well, Michael, that's not good enough. I get it. I so get it. But sometimes, that's all we have. And we have to say, God, the one thing I can count on is my relationship with you. And maybe I can count on the oppressor to continue to to oppress. But we're not focusing on that. We are focusing on the fact that we have a constant relationship. Our reason for praise is that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. God keeps his promises. When people fail, when things go wrong, God keeps his promises. He does not ignore our plight, David tells us, shows us, describes to us, proves to us. He does not ignore what's going on. He is not unaware. He is not hiding. But he does not guarantee deliverance from oppression. As a matter of fact, he guaranteed we would be oppressed as believers. We would experience persecution. Uh, Theologian Peter Craigie put it this way. Belief and morality are not guarantees of happiness and stability. They do not ensure benefits and security. Belief in God and the morality which must accompany that belief are, in one sense, their own rewards and promise nothing more with respect to security And a trouble-free life. But, in another sense, they do offer something more than the security and superficial happiness which characterized the life of the wicked. They offer that continuing relationship with God which imparts ultimate meaning to human existence. A relationship within which the psalmist concludes his thoughts. There's no promise of deliverance at any point that being good and believing the right things are going to protect you from bad things. There's just a guarantee that he will be with us, that he will have that relationship. There's the guarantee that he will deliver us from brokenness. And here is the incredible thing about the mercy of God. His promise of a deliverance from brokenness is for the oppressed and the oppressor. People oppress because they're broken. Uh, The phrase that's going around the social medias is, hurt people hurt people. The oppressed oppress because they're broken. And God's promise is to them as well. So while you are praying that God would break the arm of the oppressor, Pray that God would break the heart of that oppressor and that that person would come to Jesus. Realize his lostness. Realize his functional atheism. Because the oppressed and the oppressor are the result of a broken world. Brokenness. It's what we live in. But it wasn't God's plan. 
It was not God's design. God's design was perfect. God's design, God's plan was for us to live in harmony, in relationship with him and with each other, and then sin came into that design and messed it up and caused brokenness. It was started however many thousands of years ago, but we still see it now, and we experience that brokenness. It might be oppression in this sense, it might be medical issues, it might be other issues, but we experience brokenness, and we know what that is, and we try to fix it ourselves, and, and maybe we'll take on the oppressor, or maybe we'll fight fire with fire, or maybe we'll do this, and that's just squiggly lines that get us nowhere and end up breaking us even more. God's answer is not to take the fight on ourselves. God's answer is relationship. And God's relationship now comes through the gospel. We respond to Jesus and him crucified. We respond to his resurrection. We respond to the fact that Jesus was perfect, lived a sinless life, died for my sin and your sin on the cross, was buried and rose three days later to prove his victory over death and the truth of his victory over sin. That's the gospel, but we, in order to uh, fix the brokenness in our lives, whether it's as oppressed or as oppressor, we must repent and believe. Our, our brokenness, is, or even if it is a, a brokenness or oppression that is not caused by us, without Jesus, we are still broken. We are still living in a cycle of sinfulness and reaction rather than response. So we repent of our sin. The oppressor repents of his sin and believes the gospel. And then, then we get to recover and begin to pursue God's design in a new relationship. Not just with the Lord, but certainly with the Lord, but a new relationship with each other. Where the oppressed and the oppressor come together. Sounds like a pipe dream. What it sounds like to me is gospel community and the miracle that God can do in the hearts of people if they will respond in faith. Would you do that today? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you hear the cry of the oppressor, that you hear the pain, that you hear the hurt. And God, you are not distant and uncaring. But God, thank you that you love even, you love, love not just the oppressed, the pain and the hurt, but you love the oppressor. And you want to see both in relationship with you. God, I can't fathom that sort of mercy, grace, and love, but that's because I'm not God. And Lord, it takes you no more effort to love the oppressed, or rather it takes no more effort to love the oppressor than it does to love the oppressed. And that's the beauty of your perfect love. So Lord, I pray this morning that whether we see ourselves in the position of the oppressed or we know for a fact we're in the position of the oppressor, that we would respond this morning in faith to the relationship that you offer that can heal the brokenness that causes both. God, speak to our hearts this morning as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what's your decision this morning? How should you respond? What is your reason for praise going to be today? Is your reason for praise going to be that you came to Christ? That you had no hope in your brokenness, but now you have hope? 
Is your reason for praise today going to be that I don't know if I'm getting out of the situation I'm in, but I know my relationship with the Lord and I can move through it with Him because He strengthens me daily. Maybe it is your relationship as the oppressor that you need to give to the Lord. and Say, Lord, this is who I am, this is who I have been, and it's time for me to stop. God, I pray, or person, I pray that you would pray have God do that work. Whatever your decision is this morning, however you need to respond, if it's accepting Christ, being baptized, praying at these uh, prayer rails, or praying with me or Tom, do it this morning. Let's stand, let's sing, and let's do business with God.